Hello, I'm Wayne Park, and welcome to Oikonomics, a podcast about the science of ministry, work, administration, and the summing up of everything. Keep coming back for relevant teachings and talks on these subjects and more. Please enjoy the show. We are wrapping up our study today through Eugene Peterson's Under the Unpredictable Plant. And we've talked about a number of things already. Uh, first, we talked about Tarshish and how this, is, this was a place of pastoral escapism. Secondly, we talked about Jonah's rock bottom in the fish and how his prayer there formed his ascesis. Um, and we talked about a rule of life pertaining to that as well. Third, we talked about Nineveh as a place of pastoral acceptance uh, in contrast to Tarshish. Fourth, and the subject of this talk, is the unpredictable plant. Now, I don't know if Peterson ever explicitly shares his opinion on the meaning of the plant or why he so prominently qualifies it as unpredictable in his title. I think what Peterson is referring to in The Unpredictable Plant is the pastoral vocation itself. For indeed, ministry is quite unpredictable. And in many ways, I think it mirrors the minister's unpredictability himself or herself. Uh, We can see this in Jonah in chapter 4, verse 1, where Jonah Uh, It says, uh, this is my literal translation of the Hebrew. It says, it was bad to Jonah, a great bad. And then a few short verses later in verse 6 of chapter 4, literally translated, it says, Jonah was happy, a great happy. And so it would appear in one second, it was bad to Jonah, a great bad. And then in the next, it was, he was happy, a great happy. And we we get a sense, um, at least the way he's portrayed, Um, that Jonah is anything but steadfast, uh, let alone predictable. Um, I will say that for this reason, I am very drawn to Jonah as a character, that God would use such persons um, in his ministry. As a younger Christian, I was very much drawn to the Apostle Paul. His temperament, his contentiousness, his flighty and hot-blooded nature— These were actually all things that I very much related to. And these would have seemed to have disqualified him from being used by God. And yet, um, it was in many ways because of these characteristics that God used him. I saw in the example of Paul and now in Jonah, God making a trophy of his grace out of such (laughs) ill-tempered unpredictable, and sometimes quite fickle people. And it's in moments like that that I'm encouraged, encouraged that even I, even we, even Jonah's and Paul's and so on and so forth can be used by God. So it would seem to me that this story is just as much about the salvation of Jonah as much as it is about the salvation of Nineveh. It's about the development of of Jonah as the minister, particularly in relationship with God. And yes, it's about Nineveh, but it seems that that takes second stage to this more important relational dialogue between Jonah 
and his God. You see, in many ways, we see the stage of ministry as the main event, but we fail to see that, like Jonah, we are very much in the process of being shaped in our relationship with God. You see, God could really just leave Jonah alone and say, he's irritable, I'm not going to engage. But in verse 4 of chapter 4, Jonah uh, is approached by God. And God says, do you have good reason to be angry? Now, first of all, let me tell you that there are two ways that you can approach a disgruntled person. Uh, One way, you can really engage them and draw them out. Um, But the other way is to just leave them alone and don't get involved. I mean, if it were me, I would just leave Jonah alone to his mopey self. My goodness, I mean, he's already passive-aggressive in nature as it is. There's almost no way to win. And yet, despite this, this sentiment, God asks, do you have good reason to be angry? God leans in and engages. And of course, it's almost to be expected, instead of engaging back, Jonah sulks off. Don't you love passive-aggressiveness? And Jonah just tromps off in verse 5 and goes out from the city and sits east of it. And he makes a shelter for himself and sits uh, sits under the shelter in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. There's almost a sense that Jonah is still waiting for the destruction that he prophesied. Back in chapter 3, verse 4, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. He's waiting for that to come true. In fact, he demands it to come true. Lest, as I said uh, in Calvin's interpretation, lest he looks like a vain and lying prophet, and for that matter, failed prophet. His prophecy didn't come true. It must come true. Let the city be overthrown so that I can be vindicated in my preaching. His actions appear to insist on this. It almost even hints at a sense of greater self-righteousness on the part of Jonah, even more than God. Jonah thinks he's right and angry he won't talk to God. And then God does three things. Three things as he re-engages, quietly re-engages back with Jonah. Again, this is about the minister and his or her God. Let us not become so task-oriented that we just see the field of ministry and fail to see the minister or fail to see ourselves as the project, ourselves as God's canvas. And so in relating to Jonah, God does three things. And once again, I call your attention to yet another lead word. And that word is appointed in the Hebrew, mana. Um, It may not be reflected in your English translation, but it, it, it does appear three times in succession here. Three times in verse 6 of chapter 4, God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head. And then in verse 7, God appointed a worm to eat that very same plant. And then in verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head. So the repetition of this lead word in, in the Hebrew mana translated appointed, appointed, appointed. What gives? What's the story here? At first, uh, it seems like God, in his tender mercy and kindness, appoints a plant to grow over Jonah and says, I'll take care of you. I still love you. I know you're mad at me. Here's a blanket for your back. Here's a, here's a, little, here's a little drinky to take to bed with you. Or here's a little snuggie. God appoints something warm and fluffy. Well, he appoints a plant in this case. 
which would seem like that's great. Maybe the story should end there and God loves Jonah, the end. But it doesn't end there. Maybe that's why Peterson calls it the unpredictable plant. Because as much as the story is a love story between God and his, and his messenger, it's also a story of God's sovereignty. Because thereafter, God appoints a worm and a scorching east wind. As if to say, it does not always happen the way we want. You cannot script ministry. You simply cannot. Which is why I, for one, am incredibly skeptical of um, how-tos when it comes to, you know, something you'll see in social media, you know, five how-tos on how to be a successful minister. For crying out loud, it's an unpredictable plant. It might start off great in verse 6, but by 7 and 8, um, something's attacking it from below, and the next thing you know, it's being scorched. It doesn't happen. Ministry does not happen the way we want. Well, now Jonah's really mad. He's really mad, and I know how he feels. This didn't go the way I planned. I was supposed to graduate from seminary. I was supposed to get a good, solid call my first time around. And my first call, the people would be perfect. They would be docile and easy to work with. And the church would have flourished and grown to 10,000 by year three. It does not go the way we want. Even if you're successful, even if you are successful by, by year three, it still does not go the way you want. And Jonah... Uh, like many a minister post-seminary, not only gets mad, he starts talking back to God. And in verse 9, Jonah says, I have good reason to be angry, even to the point of death. And it, it's, it's funny, you can almost hear his theology there. He knows that he can't shake his fist at God, or he knows that he can't, he can't hurt God. So he's like, well, then I'm just going to die, lay down and die such as sometimes the response of the minister. We know that we're trapped between our call and sanity. Good reason to be angry, even to the point of death. Well, let's examine Jonah's reason. Let's examine. I mean, yes, granted, he's got an attitude problem. And for all of his passive aggressiveness, well, maybe he does have a reason. Let's look at it. And I've talked about this before. Um, the idea of a foreign nation receiving God's mercy, it's unthinkable. For a Jewish person, it's unthinkable. The idea of a foreign expansionist aggressor receiving God's mercy, okay, I agree with you, Jonah. That's pretty bad. I mean, this is the nation. These are the people that are going to take over and conquer your country. If I were you, I'd be upset too. I get it. A foreign nation actually repenting? When Israel won't? Now, that just offends his sensibilities. It's inconceivable. A foreign nation actually repenting and negating my sense of justice. It's out of the question. Let me drive this point home and see if this sticks. For modern Christian readers like us to dismiss Jonah as fickle, the fickle prophet, this can be perceived on the part of the Hebrew reader who is totally sympathetic with Jonah's standpoint, this can be perceived as a maddening cultural ignorance. Like we say Jonah is fickle and he's passive aggressive and all this and that, but the, the ancient Hebrew reader who understands the historical context would be really frustrated with us in saying that. That would be a very culturally ignorant thing 
and I would say culturally imperialistic thing for us to say today, thousands of years later. I mean, I mean, this book of Jonah must have been scandalizing for the Israelite conscience. Scandalizing. It's almost like this. And this is the point I want to drive. It's like saying the Nazi regime repented and they were pardoned for their crimes. No way, we say, justly they are prosecuted. Just because some of the leaders of the Nazi regime said, we were sorry for what we did, we repent, and for God to relent? No, God, you're wrong. You're wrong, God, I'm sorry. They need to go through their Nuremberg trials and duly prosecuted and summarily punished for what they did, the atrocity. In similar fashion, understand, Jonah is rightly scandalized. And for the Israelite reader to hear this, that the Assyrians, the Ninevites of Assyria, would be pardoned by God? Inconceivable. Of course, um, a bad attitude, it's a drag on everyone. I get it. But the thing is, Jonah's argument, it's really not inconsistent with the corpus of Old Testament literature and thought. It's right in line with a lot of the struggles that the Israelites were having. Do we fight against Babylon or do we go in and live uprightly like Daniel and his friends? Do we rail against exile and fight it or do we live faithfully in the midst of it? This is the ongoing tension all throughout the Old Testament and really not just in exilic literature, but uh, arguably uh, even further beyond throughout the Old Testament corpus, you'll see this sentiment. Uh, basically in verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? This is God's response. You see, in a way, God is engaging with all of Israel, not just Jonah. And of course, uh, Jonah in many sense, he, he, he represents God's attempt to speak to all of the people. In many ways, the ministry is manifested in the minister. God's dealings with the minister is the way he ministers to all of his people. And the very thing that Jonah is struggling with is indeed the very thing that Israel is struggling with. What do we do in exile? Do we fight or do we, do we, do we kind of build vineyards and, and build homes and plant vineyards and and and, and grow, you know, families and stuff like that? Do we settle down? What do we do? Do we accept this? Jonah is a perfect example of this struggle. So when God says in verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, he presents his argument. He says in verse 10, you, you had compassion on the plant which you did not cause to grow. And then in verse 11, I had compassion on Nineveh, which has grown to 120,000. So there's a parallelism there. Uh, it's not as clearly evident in the English. It certainly is in there in the Hebrew. You had compassion on the plant which you did not cause to grow. I had compassion on Nineveh, which has grown to 120,000. Once again, reinforcing this idea, it doesn't happen the way we want. 
just as God appoints the worm and the scorching east wind, in his sovereignty he does so, in like manner. Whether you like it or not, it is just God's sovereignty that this city, Nineveh, has been caused to prosper, flourish, and become the seat of the forthcoming Assyrian empire that is going to overtake Israel. It is the way it is. It's God's sovereignty. I will say this. There are two interpretive approaches to this. There's two interpretive approaches. Number one, if we can have a neat and tidy systemized theology and say, um, no, God is against the Gentiles. Um, it's a black and white system of ethics, and it, we have to restore Israel, and that's that. In which case, if that's how we see theology, Jonah is really little more than antinomy. It's a puzzle. It's a theological contradiction that sits in the middle of the Old Testament that we don't know what to do with. And it's really the only use that it has for us is it's kind of a, a puzzle for seminary students to work on their Hebrew. And that's all that Jonah is. Theologically, it doesn't have any other significant contribution to make. If we, if that's how we approach interpretively this book, that is to say, if we see this strictly from a, a system of ethics that is black and white and our theology uh, fights against the idea of exile. Uh-huh. A second approach, a second approach to Jonah is to embrace the difficulty herein, to see this book as God's dialogue with a petulant Israel, continually returning to them, even attempting to explain his ways to them when really it makes no sense why God is saving Nineveh and the imperialistic Assyrian Empire, if we understand this book as God pursuing relationship with the prophet himself and by proxy the people of Israel himself, then suddenly the book actually coheres. It actually does make sense if we see that the mission is not just the message or the mission is not just the ministry, but actually the mission is the messenger himself or herself. If you are able to see that the point of this book is not a black and white statement of exile and God's justice, but rather that this is about relationship between God and the messenger, the book coheres. It stands. Theologically, it makes sense. Friends, what I'm trying to say ultimately is this. The purpose of your ministry, it's not just the salvation of souls. I've met many seminarians who see themselves as saying, I'm, I'm going into this to prepare for the ministry because there's people to save and there's all this great work to do. Yes, yes, I don't want to diminish that by any means. But do not approach your ministry just from a strictly utilitarian sense. Ministry is very much about the salvation of your own soul as well. It's about how God is dealing with you as the prophet. You see, if you see ministry in the strictly utilitarian fashion, but you fail to see the formational, for you, the formational and the existential framework, your ministry will ultimately just be shallow, task-driven, and it will truly lack any meaningful encounter with, with the divine. 
ministry must spring from these difficult relationships like the one that God is having with Jonah right now. It is from such places that true ministry is birthed. Many times I've said, uh, ministry is my sanctification. Uh, I know that sounds rather self-serving. And I, I would even go so far as to say, do not go into ministry if you're seeking your sanctification. Um, as one of my professors said, uh, he said, do not, do not preach to save your own soul. Um, but at the same time, I assure you, stick around long enough and you will find that ministry will be part of your sanctification process. It will. In fact, you will have moments like Jonah where you're saying, I have good reason to be angry even to the point of death. I, don't, I, I can't make sense of your sovereignty, God. And I can tell you that it is actually from places like that that your ministry will truly be birthed. In the end, the unpredictable plant of ministry will frustrate you. It will frustrate you to no end. You will witness, on the one hand, God's mercy and kindness in the form of a plant, and then suddenly you will see God's sovereignty, a scorching wind, a worm. As if to say, it just doesn't go the way I want. Ministry is so unpredictable. But be comforted in knowing. It's not about the results in some utilitarian fashion. It is indeed very much about you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to learn more, visit us online at www.oikonomics.com. That's O-I-K-O-N-O-M-I-K-S dot com.